1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I'm talking with Kimberly Mack about her wonderful book, Fictional Blues, Narrative Self-Invention from Bessie Smith to Jack White. Kimberly, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So uh, just to start off, could you tell us a bit about your evolution as a writer and as a scholar?
0: Sure yeah so I um, well it's quite a long story I'll, I'll try to make it I'll try to make it short um, essentially I began as a creative writer um, if I go back even a little bit before that I began as a dramatic writer uh, so uh, my undergraduate degree actually is from NYU in uh, so when I was very young I had an interest in being a playwright, I thought that's what I was going to do. And then I made a shift and uh, went back to school about 10 years later and uh, uh, decided to pursue creative writing. So I, I completed an MFA in creative writing back in uh, 2003. And uh, writing creatively, dramatically is kind of what I always was interested in from from from, a ch- from childhood, really. Um, and then at some point, I, I started to have uh, some ideas for projects. Um, one of the things I'll back up a second and say that I, I eventually became a music critic. Music is something that I was always interested in from childhood. Rock was the music that was in my house, rock and rock and roll. And, um, and as a child, I actually uh, uh, spent time reading my mother's Rolling Stone and Cream magazines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and those magazines would have these incredible tales of uh, rock and roll debauchery, and a lot of self mythologization would go on in those tales, both of the artists who would be interviewed or talked about, and also the music critics themselves. And, and so I was just very, very interested in the sort of fictive personas and narrative trickery in those stories. So as I grew up and became a music critic myself, I, I started to think more about the origins of this music that I loved, rock music, and, and of course, I knew that blues played some role there, um, but I didn't know a lot about the blues. And so I... Uh, I went ahead and uh, continued this work as a critic and eventually had ideas about writing about uh, music and bringing all of my interests together, my interest in um, literature, my interest in uh, rock criticism, my interest in uh, popular music, and I, I had some fledgling ideas about what I might want to do. And I, and I realized that in order to do the stuff I wanted to do, I needed more grounding. I needed more training. So I decided to pursue a PhD in English and I ended up um, completing that PhD at, at UCLA in uh, 2015. And, um, and shortly after that, I uh, began a job, a tenure track job as an assistant professor of African-American literature and culture at the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio, and um, and this book, Fictional Blues, came out of research that I began uh, at UCLA, and um, I've spent the last four, five years, four or five years. Uh, making
1: that book a reality. Great. So you talked a bit about this idea of the kind of extravagant self mythologization of uh, a certain type of rock and roll artist. You know, you think of like Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones, you know, these kind of larger than life personalities, which is kind of very different than how we typically think of or... I mean, maybe that's not true. It's it's perhaps different than how we typically think of the self-presentation of blues musicians, you know, especially if we think of like kind of classic Delta blues. Uh, it's, it's this idea that it's a very kind of down-to-earth, uh, you know, folk music genre. Um, what do you think is kind of problematic about that typical point of view on the blues?
0: Yeah, So so... The thing is, I think the very important thing to remember is that the blues figures and, um, and my book is, it's historical and contemporary. And so, um, I, I focus on a lot of, uh, contemporary figures, but they're all in a conversation with this early 20th century idea of blues authenticity. Um, so I think it's just really important to remember that whether we're talking about the classic blues women, um, and when I say that I mean figures like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and Mamie Smith and others, or we're talking about the uh country blues or delta blues uh figures um like Robert Johnson or Sunhouse. Uh is that all of these all of these folks were professionals, uh professional musicians who had um ideas about um, how to um, excite an audience, how to grow a fan base. I mean, things that we think about in very contemporary terms. I mean, these are people who um, had agency and control over their images and their stories. Uh, and so uh, I think it's just really important to bear in mind that the these ideas that people sometimes have about blues musicians, um, uh, uh, images coming out of some sort of authentic nationalized self are actually, you know, carefully constructed, and they're and they and they're carefully constructed fictions, and 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 that's because, really, uh, we all as audience members like stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we all enjoy stories. We all enjoy also being able to participate. In stories, and uh, the blues musicians, much like the rockers who who came out of that tradition, I think understood that as well as um, as as people um, in contemporary times do, but often aren't given that credit.
1: Yeah, you, you tell a kind of amazing story of Muddy Waters touring England and these kind of, you know, uh, English blues aficionados are totally with him for the acoustic set. But then when he comes back with his full band, which is one of the, the greatest bands in blues <laughs> history, uh, you know, they, they boo him because he's playing electric blues. And suddenly it's not their idea of this kind of primitive uh, Delta blues musician.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a story that Keith Richards uh relayed in his, uh, memoir from a few years ago. Uh, yeah, he tells that story. And, and so, you know, so it's important to kind of realize that what ended up happening is, you know, you had these early 20th century players, men and women. Um, and, uh, then sometime in the 1950s, you had largely white and middle-class blues collectors and critics who, blues revivalists, who uh, became attached to folk the idea of folk blues, um, okay. acoustic not not amplified blues and uh, you know uh, celebrated uh, certain artists, <clears throat> mainly uh, male artists and sort of the lone guitar player became this mythologized figure and part of it I think you know is because there really wasn't a whole lot of Information, particularly about Robert Johnson, who I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Um, but you know, I think the the scant details of some of the people's lives, although some of them again were quote unquote rediscovered and, and brought out in the in the 60s, um, you know, to go on tour and stuff. But but I think the, the the lack of concrete details about some of the figures really fueled the interest. Um, And so you had these, again, these largely white blues collectors and and critics and and later scholars who were really entranced with the music, but really had, I think, um, you know, somewhat limited or limiting ideas about who these people were and and took a lot of the the songs and the lyrics and the songs to be um, directly, uncritically autobiographical, um, not really thinking about the tradition that it was coming out of, and um, and that's something that I talk about in the book. Um, in the opening chapter, I, I lay out a, a framework for the history and the ways in which you know we get to um, a Robert Johnson. We get to this these myths and, and these exciting stories that we all love. Um, you know, and I start with Stagolee, the Stagolee tale, which I think is is the the catalyst for all of this. Um, and the Stagger Lee story, for those of your listeners who don't know, um, it's, it's it's a it, it's a myth. There isn't a person named Stagger Lee or Stagger Lee. But there was a real-life person named Lee Shelton who, on uh, Christmas night in 1895, killed another man named Billy Lyons. Um, and there were, you know, according to the newspaper the next day, there were four murders like this. Um, that night. But this one stood out because of a detail that was included, and that's that uh, Lee Shelton, as he walked away, he picked up his hat, um, and later, it was a a Setson hat, but he picked up his hat off the head of the person he had killed and, you know, quote unquote, coolly walked away. And uh, this this detail became something that um, people, just everyday people, found to be incredibly interesting. And all of a sudden there was all of this kind of um, oral storytelling around this 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 person who became known as Stagger Lee, a bad man figure, you know, a black man who, um, you know, as the tellings and retellings happened with the tale, a black man who morphed into, you know, somebody who uh, was so tough and so quote unquote bad that you know, he wasn't afraid of white people. He couldn't be held down by, um, you know, racism or held back. Um, he wasn't, he, he eventually even became, as the, as the stories evolved over time of people telling the stories and these stories turning into ballads, he even became a magical figure. And then at some point in the tale, he's in league with the devil. And so eventually these ballads become songs. And then, of course, the blues tradition comes out of this black folkloric storytelling tradition. And, and of course, at some point we have the bedeviled bluesman. And that's where you get the Robert Johnson myth, um, the crossroads tale, where he allegedly went to a crossroads you know, at midnight in the Delta in order to sell his soul to the devil to become a better guitar player. So, uh, yeah, all these
1: things come together. And the, the, the Robert Johnson crossroads story, it wasn't that originally supposed to be about Tommy Johnson?
0: Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting, right? So but I'll- it's a
1: way better story when it's Robert Johnson. I mean, when it's the guy who wrote crossroads blues and hellhound on my trail, you know, there's a certain kind of like fit to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tommy Johnson, who's not related to Robert Johnson uh, so his brother Liddell Johnson actually told Robert Evans, who's a who's a blues scholar, um, uh, uh, back back then, that uh, his brother Tommy had had sold his soul. So so Robert John- this idea of Robert Johnson having sold his soul to the devil, um, I think that it, you know over time people ha- it has it has morphed into people thinking that he in fact had said this that he he proclaimed this. Um, whereas there's absolutely no evidence that Robert Johnson ever said anything of the kind, um, there are other people who allegedly said this. Allegedly, Sunhouse said this at some point, um, and there are other people like Honeyboy Edwards who um, doesn't say it but doesn't completely shut, shut it down. I think in understanding in his autobiography, uh, in understanding that people really like these like the story and um, and like to participate in it, but the person who actually said that somebody sold their soul was Liddell Johnson about his brother, Tommy Johnson, um, and said that he did that. And, and, and that's how he became a, you know, a great guitar player who could play anything.
1: So is part of the point for you just that we should take these stories as stories, as you know, as as fiction, as folklore, and we can enjoy them in that way as long as we don't kind of do this essentializing move of saying, you know, this represents some pure, unadulterated truth about Black rural America.
0: So, I mean, the main takeaways here, first of all, I just think it's it's very important to understand that um, these tales. Uh, and there, and there are so many from the from the originators, from the classic blues women, from the blues men. Um, these tales are coming out of the Black African American folklore tradition. So I think it's important to kind of think about that, and and also what that means in terms of um, how these fictions work, how tall tales work, you know, um, and this whole question of lying versus tall tales, and and how. You know, an important component of that is this, is this, is this idea that storytelling itself is, is, is a very, very important part of, of the African-American oral tradition. And again, not just individual storytelling, but uh, uh, sort of collective participatory storytelling. And so when going back to Sagar Lee again, it's not just about one person telling the story and then that's the story. It's about people telling it and retelling it and how it becomes um different things and it grows out um um into different directions, but then how it, it ultimately bears uh comes to bear on this uh blues, you know, and how the blues makers were drawing on this tradition when they were um, tapping in and, and writing their songs. And, and so it's very important, first of all, to just, I think, think about the blues tradition not as this sort of racially essentialist, um, you know, form where you have to be in a particular body, um, you know, you have to come from a certain geographical region or you have to um, come from a certain uh, uh, um, uh, uh, class position, to perform it honestly, but to really make an argument for the blues as a narrative tradition. Um, so that's one part, but also what's important here is again, um, uh, allowing for uh, the agency of the blues makers themselves in telling stories, telling their stories um, in, in ways that um, affirm, their own um again professionalism creativity Mm -hmm. um, intellectual abilities all of these things and and you know i think an important example of that comes in my second chapter where i'm focused on women on the classic blues women um and 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 mid-century uh 20th century and beyond but in that chapter that's a chapter that uh so this book, by the way, I'll just back up and say that this book is multidisciplinary. Uh, again, I have a PhD in English, and, and, and so uh, my training uh, in, from an English perspective is in closely reading literary texts. Um, and a lot of my, my focus uh, as a, as a uh, PhD candidate was on 20th and 21st century African-American literature um, American literature, ethnic American literature, etc. And so, this book has, uh, of course, a lot of close readings of literary texts, but it but also um, has a lot of American popular music and closely reading of um, uh, uh, interviews and um, music videos, and and also has a a, a interdisciplinary move um in a different chapter on Jack White. So the book has a mix of literature in certain chapters and mix of music and literature together in others. Mm-hmm. And so in chapter two, the one on the blues women, I start with a conversation about the color purple, uh, the novel by Alice Walker. And in that novel she has um fictive classic blues figures. Um, and the novel itself takes place. It's not always easy to quite know where we are in time in the color purple, but it's roughly 1919 to like 1949. And, uh, so Shook Avery, who's a, a central character in the story is a blues woman. Um, and, you know, could be like a Ma Rainey or a Bessie Smith in that era. And, and then there's another figure named Squeak who becomes an unexpected blues person, Uh, later and so in that chapter I start there and then I move on to Big Mama Thornton who's a blues legend from the mid-20th century and then I end with Amy Whitehouse who's a a white English um, uh, uh, performer who singer-songwriter who um, is unfortunately not with us anymore but in that chapter I'm I'm looking about looking at how this phenomenon works across time and space um and i'm particularly looking at the echoes of of this historical um sort of folkloric storytelling that i'm talking about and how it echoes across time and so you know starting with uh uh and squeak in the color purple and thinking about uh Alice Walker and the ways in which Alice Walker, you know, created these female characters um, who had uh, a certain narrative agency. So the whole novel is an epistolary novel, right? Told through Celie, who's the main character's um, view. So every single thing that happens in the novel is through her, her, her uh, control. Um, Celie controls everybody's narratives um, and But then within that, Seeley allows Suge to tell stories as a blues woman, and Suge is able to uh, correct the record. And, and this is a very important part of this chapter and other parts of the book, too, where this narrative strength and power and agency is used for Black women um, to correct the record and to push against uh, kind of limiting, limited uh, ideas about who they are rooted in patriarchy and racism. And so with Shook, for example, she has the opportunity, uh, Celie through her narrative gives Shook the space to, to tell the story about how she and Albert, who is uh, Celie's, abusive husband uh but at one point albert had been with um suge and suge takes the opportunity to recuperate his image for celie and to kind of give Celia an idea of how she could have fallen lo- in love with albert and how he was once a different person um and then also takes the opportunity to tell the story about albert's father and the role that albert's father had in uh breaking up Albert and Suge, and um, and how a lot of that was rooted in Albert's father's distaste for Shug um, and her sexuality and his um, deciding that uh, Suge and Albert's ch- children were not really um, biologically related to Albert um, and discounting Shug's, uh, you know, uh, Security, respectability, all of those things. And Suge has a chance, though, through Sealy's uh, rendering of her narrative to set the record straight, uh, to, to, to push back on Albert's father and to speak up for herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then when we move on to Big Mama Thornton, she does a similar move. Um, you know, Big Mama Thornton is associated with I think two songs that all of the listeners should have some familiar familiarity with, um, two 20th century songs. One of them is uh hound dog, um, which, uh, Big Mama Thornton didn't write, uh, Lieber and Stoller wrote it, but they wrote hound dog for her. Um, and even though she doesn't have, um, uh, credit as a composer, she always felt ownership over the song because she contributed her voice. And um, she uh, always said that she contributed uh, some of the talk, you know, the the sort of the banter that she has and some of the extra sounds that she threw in uh, in the song. And so she always felt some ownership of the song, uh, even though she didn't get songwriting credit. Uh, And then Ball and Chain, which she did write, and uh, became a hit for Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, and not for for Big Mama Thornton. Her version of it, when she released it, actually, the, her version never got released. It was Bayton Records. They recorded it, but it didn't get released. So it did get re-released later. But uh, Ball and Chain is what broke Janis Joplin out um, at the Monterey uh, Festival in 67, and so in the early 70s, Big Mama Thornton uh, uh, had this 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 thing that she would do uh, where she would uh, work through telling her story, you know, the sort of autobiographical narrative um, and this sort of correction of the record. She would try to reassert herself um, and make sure that she was um understood to be uh, 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 you know somebody who deserved uh, attention and credit into the 60s and 70s for being an important foundational figure of blues and blues rock so she would say at the beginning of her concert you know at the beginning of introducing a song let's say ball and chain she would talk about how she wrote it and she would say it repeatedly she would say this is a song I wrote and she would kind of perform this every time she would uh, introduce the song at the beginning of the seventies, this was a move she made. Um, And she also, of course, with hot with Hound Dog would, would, would consistently um, uh, talk about herself as, as a composer of the song. Mm -hmm. And, and even though she did not write Hound Dog uh, she again felt ownership and she would keep saying it. And her, saying it and retelling it and retelling it again um, made it made it so. It made people think about it. it made people hear her. it made people uh, uh, want to know more about her role in the song and so it served her purpose. So I bring this all back to say that you know it's not just okay, yeah, we have these figures who are, uh, telling the stories and, um, you know, their their songs are not necessarily strictly autobiographical and there's some tall tales in there and, and self-mythologizing, but it's also the political work that this does. I mean, you know, when Big Mama Thornton did the stuff she did at the beginning of the 70s, it, it made an impact. It made people um, question uh, her role in Hound Dog. It made people recognize her importance in rock history and in blues rock and in blues and it uh allowed her to reclaim and retake her voice back and so yeah this goes beyond just stories and storytelling although that's very important but it also has a real political uh function mm mm-hmm.
1: And people know I feel like anybody who's kind of a serious music fan who knows Hound Dog now knows it's Big Mama Thornton's song even if she didn't write it. It, it it she did succeed in kind of establishing that as her calling card.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly you know that's exactly I think how these how this works and how this phenomenon works and um and I think it's just important for people to recognize yeah. this phenomenon.
1: In that chapter, especially, I felt like the influence of Angela Davis's book, um, Blues Legacies and Black Feminism, seemed to be kind of hanging around that chapter. Is that, is that an influence on your thinking in, about uh, this kind of classic phase of blues?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Angela Davis was somebody who uh, spoke about these women as feminists um, you know, early on. And, and it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the, what they had to contend with, you know, the whole thing in the color purple, again, going back to the fictional character of Sugar Avery, you know, she, when she arrives in town and Celie first sees her, you know, she's, she's awed by how she looks and, you know, she's in her finery and all of that. But uh, Celie also notes that the whole town is chattering about her before she even gets there because, you know, she's a blues woman. And, and it's just important to remember that particularly in the 1920s, uh, when uh, a lot of these blues performers like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey um, and Mamie Smith were recording music, uh, you know, we had the cult of of, uh, of true womanhood and this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, middle-class respectability that was really based on ideas of white middle-class respectability and, you know, but you had members of the black middle-class that, that, that hoped, uh, and of course, members of the black church that, that wanted, um, women to also kind of black women to fall within that. And, and there were some black women who were striving to be a part of that, even though, you know, it was a tall order, given racism, um, and, um, you know, and ideas about black women dating back to chattel slavery, but, you know, uh, Shug Avery is, is not greeted favorably when she, when she arrives in the tale. And, um, so it it, it was actually quite a risk, um, and blues women like Ma Rainey and and Bessie Smith and, and others were, were really kind of fearless. If you, if you really think about, the context of where they, you know, uh, within the time that they emerged, um, they were fearless in just being musicians at all, just, um, being part of that lifestyle of touring, you know, the blues lifestyle of, of, of touring <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and being around, uh, uh men in that way. And, um, getting up on a stage. And of course the lyrics and the things that they spoke about um, also were transgressive. Um, you know, they would talk about real life issues affecting affecting the people they knew and, and, and others um, and themselves. And so, you know, the, the subject matter, the fact that they were performing on stages, uh, the fact that they were, um, you know, also in some cases, in their real lives, um transgressing ideas of heteronormative um um uh, sexual expression, you know, all of those things were were were, were very, very um unusual and um again uh, uh transgressive and so you know Angela Davis talked about them as feminists and as people who had a feminist spirit and so that definitely uh, is a part of my chapter.
1: One text that you didn't write about explicitly, I don't think, but that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the the play by August Wilson that has just recently been made into a film. Do you feel like that is a presentation of Ma Rainey that basically fits in line with what you're kind of arguing about these figures or, or do you have, do you take issue with the way that she's portrayed in that, in that film, in that play?
0: Uh, Well, that's a really good, question. And um, so, yeah, so Ma, Ma Rainey, so I think it's just important, A, to note that, of course, the play, <laughs> the theatrical version of, of Ma Rainey in the film is not supposed to be Ma Rainey, the real life Ma it's a, it's a It's a character. And I think that it's fair to read that character as someone who could be, you know, really a stand-in for um, any other uh, blues woman of that time period. And, it, and I think uh, Wilson's play was making uh, a commentary, critical commentary on uh, the ways in which these women, the classic blues women were exploited. And just, you know, I think he was commenting on the the white, Run and owned music, uh, music industry and, 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 and the exploitation that occurred. So, you know, it could have been Bessie Smith or, or, or anyone else. Um, so that, that's one thing to say. I don't think that that character was ever meant to be the Mauraini. But I think that, that's something that is important in there. And that does connect to, to my book is this idea of her voice. And she says, she says the character Mauraini says, once they have my voice, uh, they don't they don't care about me anymore. And so, you know she she sort of drags out the process of signing that contract, um, gets all of the things that she wants, even if they seem to be small things. It's a, a point that she's making um, to to show that she is a, a person who does have, um, a sense of self and power and agency, and she's going to to use that power um, while she has it before she signs uh, the contract. Uh, but she says, you know, it's my voice, and and I think we can bring that back to Big Mama. It's not just literally her singing voice; it's her her stories. You know, it's the stories behind the voice that's coming out. Um, and, you know, but once, once she signs that contract, it's no longer hers. And so I think that aspect of the play and, 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 uh, the film fits in with what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's often a a critique of, um, you, you've, we've talked a bit about these kind of white blues aficionados, but also white musicians who use the blues, uh, to their own ends. People like, you know Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Bob Dylan and there's often a criticism that those people are kind of just leeching off of this cultural production that black people have created and then obviously making, you know, much more money with those creations than someone like Sunhouse probably would have ever gotten. Um and I, I get the sense that you kind of want to push back on that critique at least uh, at least gently, uh, and kind of suggest that we should think of blues as being a much more capacious genre than we typically think of it. is Is that correct?
0: Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I would say that the way that I am framing things in the book is that, you know, the blues is coming out of a, again, a a black an African American folkloric tradition, very American folkloric tradition. Um, and it's morphing into, um, songs and music and et cetera. Um, I think blues is a black, um, form, but it's one that, that is, uh, engaged, uh, continues to be engaged by black and non-black people alike. And I think that that works, um, because of its, uh, narrative forms because of the storytelling that's inherent in the tradition. Um, so, so yeah. So I think that you can have someone like, um, you know, an Amy Winehouse or a Jack White participating in this tradition through uh, in the case of Jack White autobiographical misdirection or through very carefully constructed, uh, personas and, and stories about, um, himself and his bandmate. Um, so, so yeah, in that case, yes, I, I, I see it as very capacious because I think that, um, you know, as long as people recognize, and, you know, some people don't recognize the fictions and the blues, but, you know, people who recognize fictions in the blues and are adding to those fictions, then, then yes, they are participating in that, in that, in that tradition.
1: And I get the sense, too, that part of what you're criticizing about this kind of cult of authenticity you know, this idea that you can't be a blues musician if you're not, you know, like a, a sharecropper in Alabama is that it kind of freezes blues in this past historical moment. I mean, there aren't sharecroppers anymore in Alabama. So so if that's the criterion of uh, of authenticity, then nobody meets it in the year 2021. Is that part of what you're uh, what you're kind of trying to get at when you include Amy Winehouse and Jack White in this story?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and also it's something that, you know, if we look at, I mean, I talk about Gary Clark Jr. In in the book, who's a contemporary, um, figure who, uh, when he started out was looked at as a, uh, and looked at in, 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 in honestly, very kind of essential, racially essentialist ways as a savior for the blues, um, because of, his body and, 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 and how he, and how he, the body he was in. And because he's a great guitar player. (laughs) And I was going to say that, you know, and also his tremendous talent, um, you know, and, and you had people who really, really embraced him and wanted him to be the, you know, the, 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 the the new thing, the, the, you know, the savior of the blues and, um, you know, and by all accounts, Gary Clark Jr., loves the blues and, and plays that music well. And obviously also loves rock too. And I think his, his music has frequently had a blues rock flavor. Um, But he himself is somebody who, you know, as a black person, he kind of began to push back on, on this, this kind of, um, you know, box that people were kind of forcing him into because he grew up middle-class in, you know, Austin, Texas, and, um, just didn't see in himself, um, you know, a Mississippi sharecropper. Um, Mm -hmm. he talked about in interviews, he has talked about people saying things to him, like, you know, I want you to play that, you know, that real stuff, you know, that real Mississippi stuff. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, know and he and he's pushed back and said okay i can't i can't play that because i don't know that that's not my experience you know right um so you know i think we see in a contemporary person like gary clark jr who has to grapple with this um from a class perspective from a temporal perspective um and you know and he has he's somebody who actually has um you know really kind of resisted and, and 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 and, and I think he would say still loves blues very much, mm-hmm. but has really branched out um, and has and it's almost like the more people tried to push him into the box, the more he was determined to, you know, bring other forms of music into his repertoire, um, you know, uh, creating records that have everything from R&B and hip hop uh, to blues and rock on them.
1: Do you think part of that is that he is from Texas specifically? I mean, it seems like Texas blues has often been uh, less essentialist, maybe than than other blues scenes, and certainly it's it's influenced Texas country quite a bit. I mean, even Towns Van Zandt played blues songs, and nobody would accuse him of being a blues man in a traditional sense.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a very interesting uh, idea. That certainly that certainly could be the case, and and then I would also say that you know, in my final chapter, I talk about blues apprenticeships and that's when Mm -hmm. I engage him. And, you know, he's also coming out of a scene, you know, there's a moment in there that even when I reread it, I sometimes laugh because, you know, he was coming out of a blue scene in in Austin. And, and, and I should say, just to be fair, that contemporary blue scenes, just like contemporary American root scenes in general, tend to be very white at this point. Um, the Austin blues scene is, is, is very, very white. And, you know, and he had a mentor um, um who's white as well uh, in his early days. And, you know, so there's this part in the, in the, in the book where um, one of his friends says something like, why would you want to play, you know, you know, why would you want to play the blues? It's, you know, like kind of intimating that it's, not black music, you know, which is a kind of, but, but, um,
1: black people don't like blues music or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: You know, so, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of what has happened. Um, you know, I think in part because of the, the, you know, the first blues revival in the sixties, the second one in the nineties, um, that has just been, you know, really kind of, uh, 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 advanced by, uh, white folks, I think it has, it has helped to make the scene, uh, whiter than it might be normal.
1: Sure. Well, Kimberly Mack, thanks so much for talking with me about your book, fictional blues. It's been a real delight to have you on new books in performing arts.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: And do you have another uh, project in the works that you'd like to let our listeners know about?
0: I do. (laughs) I do. I'm actually writing it as we speak. Um, So I have a second book project that's under contract with Bloomsbury, and it's um, tentatively titled The Untold Story of Early American Rock Criticism. And it's all about the um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color and white women rock critics who were there at the very beginning in the 1960s and 70s at the forefront of creating rock criticism. Um, and, you know, so it's just sort of, uh, pushing it back against this idea that, um, rock criticism is the, is the, uh, you know, exclusive domain of white men. And, uh, it's, it's just looking at the ways in which these figures, um, who, whether they were writing in for Rolling Stone and Cream um, in the 60s and 70s, or whether they were writing outside of those, you know, kind of establishment magazines and working for dailies or weeklies or black and brown newspapers, uh, that they were using uh, their unconventional narratives to, you know, um, you know, assert their agency and power, and that they were also really, you um, you know, uh, effectively, uh, 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 helping to, um, you know, make their marks. And so my book really makes an argument for a reshaping and also an expansion of the rock critical canon.
1: Well, that sounds fantastic. We'll be sure to be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.